going on? Uh, not much. Just a snowy day here. Yeah, here too. I'd say we got about, I don't know, an inch and a half maybe. It's almost all melted by now though. I would say that's fair here. I was kind of surprised to wake up as I hear my family stirring as they're all getting ready for school and work and me being off today. Not as early to jump as they and I look around and it's like, whoa, I'm getting a visual feedback from outside that is much more intense than I expected this hour. Oh, the ground is white. That's why. Yeah, I was confident that we were going to get some precipitation. I don't know why. I just kind of knew we would. Of course, we've been having all this rain around here, too. So all it took was a tip drop. I, I expected there would be white precipitation. I did not necessarily know whether it would actually stick to anything because we were so wet which is funny how that works. Sometimes it rains a lot and then there's a snow and it does nothing. Sometimes it rains a lot. Like in March of 93, it rained all day that Friday. And I woke up from my afternoon nap of 22 inches in my yard. Yeah. I got people text messaging me. Hope they know I'm busy. Don't they know I'm busy. Well, they don't. They think <sighs> you're home enjoying the snow. <laughs> yeah. I wish there was a way I could silencio some of this stuff, but whatever. So, but the thing about this snow was people didn't seem to be freaking out. Of course, I didn't work the day before or today, so. Well, that's maybe. the glory of this. It's like um, snow is a four-letter word. It starts with S, but it has less impact if I'm not at work. Yeah. I've never been one to flip out about it. I mean, I I'm guess not, but I just don't I, like everybody else's flip out about it because, yeah. uh I mean, I do have a little bit of a long commute. Like, so if it's snow doesn't bother me, but if it's like, like I've had times where it's taken me an hour to get, I have about a, I don't know what, a 30 mile commute. I've had times where it's taken me over an hour because of ice and stuff, even in four wheel drive, you know, full size pickup truck. You just got to be careful. I mean, I get people's fear of it, but sometimes it's a little much. It's like, come on. And maybe it's, maybe it's more of the classic fear. And that is of the unknown. It's not so much the usual where, you know, our geography around the snow, because for the, you know, 46 years of my life, there have only been a handful of times where it is legitimately something to be afraid of, that you're not going to have groceries. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. Those things. And then you ask somebody else who's from the same part of their, you know, a near part of the state, they'll tell you they, they might have 12 occurrences there because where you live and the way the roads are kept up and the slope of the roads is going to make all the difference in the world because we don't have the facilities that uh, Midwestern states or any place where it's a prevalent issue. We don't have the resources to get things clear. So if it comes down and then the worst case scenario, it freezes. So you have the snow frozen on the roads. You're kind of stuck until yeah. a certain amount of traffic can get out because essentially the traffic is what helps clear the roads more than anything. And then there is the fear of I'll never be able to get groceries or I won't be able to get my medication or I won't whatever. It's it. I don't know that it's always founded and I don't know if there's anybody alive that's ever been part of anything outside of a few extreme cases, at least where we're at, that you were just stranded for a long period of time. It happens yep. and it has happened here. I know of cases in the eastern part of the state where it's much more mountainous than in that March 93 blizzard because we had never experienced anything in a number of years at that point too dangerous. People always went to the mountains where I'm from because there was always going to be more there, so it was more to play in. Downside this time, they had to be rescued by the National Guard because there was no getting off those mountains <laughs> in any kind of four-wheel drive or whatever that, you may have. That just wasn't happening. So rare, though. Like like you said, I don't oh, know. Sure. I mean— I don't know what the, everybody's, it's an irrational fear of it. Like it's, it's almost like a phobia. And it, I don't, it's, like you said, there's only been a few times where it's been like good grief. And you know, the funny thing is like people, oh, I can't go to work or I'm not going to get groceries, which has only ever happened in my lifetime once. And that was the 93 you were talking about. And we lived in, we live in the same state, but we're probably a hundred and something miles apart. Um, so that's close enough. But I think that affected the whole Eastern seaboard. Um, that oh year. yeah, for sure. And and then the only other time I know of anything happening in the South was when Atlanta 86. got that snow. No, like that this is just a few years ago. Oh, okay. Um, remember when Atlanta got that bad snow, everybody was trapped on the interstate. But that's, oh, yeah. that's like one time. And people make fun of it. But, I mean, if you're stuck on the interstate, what are you going to do? You know, I mean. And the odds <coughs> are people in the South 
or not, and I, I don't know about, uh, but you know, many of my friends in Colorado or Utah, um, these guys where they're used to that, maybe, I uh, hope, but maybe those guys always travel with, you know, a couple bottles of water, some granola bars, something like that, just because yeah. you never know. But maybe they don't because they have such great equipment and resources. That's not ever a problem. Now, I don't know, but somewhere in between of the, this is always how it is. And we just live with it. And the county, city and state also help take care of it. Somewhere between that and the areas that never get snow, it's going to get a little dangerous. And I, I don't was, mean the uh, death from it, but there's going to be a certain amount of paralysis for a certain amount of time. Yep. There was one other time. Um, I think it was before that bad Atlanta snowstorm, or maybe it was the same one. I'm not sure. I was actually coming back from Atlanta and um, got to North Georgia, and it was awful. Like the roads were standstill, and everybody was just hauling ass on the interstate that wasn't from the south. Thinking, you know, they were just thinking like it was up north, just flying by me. I was just watching them fly by, and they all had northern license plates. And about 200 yards later, they'd be off in the ditch. It's like, see, it's one thing to drive fast in the snow when the roads are treated with salt. Then, yeah, you're just driving on on water. But these people were thinking, you know, what are these hicks doing down here, you know? And, but, hey, when the road's ice, you can't drive on it. But anyway, but mostly I think it's unfounded. People just freak out about it, and I just, it's kind of silly. It's it's mainly like rain, and uh, what I mean by that is if you just drive a, a good bit more cautious than you do on a dry day, which yep. is probably how people should drive in the rain. It doesn't mean you break way before you get to the red light. It just means be aware the road is wet. So making that last second stop that you're used to making in the life of a hurry that we're all in, it's probably not a good idea because you may scoot through the intersection. Well, the same is going to happen on a snowy day, albeit a tad slicker. Yeah. People just, I don't know, either people overreact or they don't react at all. I got a friend who doesn't adjust the way he drives, whether it's raining 100 degrees and dry, whether he's in his Camaro or whether he's in a pickup truck. I mean, he doesn't, it's, it's the same. We were getting on the interstate the other day. I was riding with him, going around the corner in his truck. I was like, man, slow down, buddy. This ain't your Camaro. <laughs> it's not a, not a Porsche here. Yeah, there are some who still have a little bit of the Knievel gene. Oh, goodness. Does definitely scare me to ride with him, and I don't think that's a phobia. What do you know about fear? Um, I would say for a good part of my life, I've been haunted by one or more. And as I have gained the knowledge and friendships and close conversation over the course of my life, find that I, I would be surprised in all honesty if we could find no one that would say at some point in their life they weren't at least heavily bothered, if not regularly occurrence, um, fear-based living. Now, that's probably going to be more in a childhood, I hope. But I think those things carry on into adulthood. And a lot of those fears may turn into phobias. And those kind of manifest themselves into your personality. I think a lot of how people do what they do, social interactions, and how open you are or not, and whether you form friendships, a lot of them, how close they are, I think a lot of it centers around fears. Hmm, I don't not necessarily snakes and spiders, but kind of the more generalized and social fears and, and issues with attachment and things like that. I don't, I got to be more specific. I don't, I, I when I was a kid, I was, I, I wouldn't say it was like agoraphobia or anything like that, but just genuinely afraid of bullies and whatnot at school, like being scared to go to school. I didn't like reading new, like articles in front of the class. I didn't mind reading. Well, I should take that back. I didn't mind like, you know, when you go around the class and like you take turns reading, I never minded that. I was, I was a good reader. I could speak, or at least I felt like I was compared to some of the numb schools I went to school with, but I did not like giving presentations or like reading your paper in front of the class. I remember one time in sixth grade I was reading and like, I just started making it up. I was so nervous. I couldn't read the paper. I just started trying to talk from memory and I don't know how terrible it was. I'm glad it wasn't videoed. Oh, that'd be cringeworthy watching nowadays. What do you think is the source of that? I think that is probably one of the most common, not like not everybody's going to be afraid of heights. I think it's one of the more popular ones, just like snakes and spiders uh, public speaking, which is kind of what we're talking about, even though it might be just you in your first, second or sixth grade class, it's usually ranked as being higher than the fear of death. As the old comedian's joke goes, <laughs> you would rather be dead than actually giving a eulogy. I don't know. Uh, because of the vulnerability? Maybe. I think, because see, here's the thing. I've gotten over it. I got over it in my early 20s, in my mid 20s. 
I could go give a speech specifically? right now. Like you, yeah. you, you had it, you addressed it. You're like, I'm going to take this bull by the horns or more out of this. Uh, what do they call it when they expose someone to spiders in the room and they get closer and yeah. closer more? You chose to do know. that or it was just kind of a switch. I think it just happened. Um, I think it happened. It came along with self-confidence, like kind of felt, found my self-confidence in college. You know, I wasn't as worried about it. I remember I gave a good a presentation in freshman. Um, it's not orientation. We had a class at in college that was, I forget what it was called, but I had to give a presentation. I remember it was one of the first ones I gave and I wasn't really scared. I just got up there and was loose. I knew I had to do it. There's no sense in being scared over it. And then. Were you um, a little bit nervous? Yeah, I was at first. Um, I mean, I was nervous for sure. Um, and I, I don't know, it's kind of, I don't know. I, um, it just kind of seemed to go away through college. And then I, I didn't, I didn't really notice it going away in college. Um, but when I got to grad school, um, I really had no problem at all speaking in front of people. I don't know if it's cause then the confidence was super boosted. So I don't know if maybe it stems from incompetence, like you, you're afraid socially to be made fun of, or, um, you know, you don't want to look like an idiot in front of people. Um, but I, I was president of um, a large fraternity. fraternity. Yeah, in school. And it was, we were the largest chapter of the largest fraternity. And so once I became president, and, and you know, I wasn't even nervous like giving my speech running for president. I just had to talk in front of people so often. It, I guess maybe I got used to it. It didn't phase me. I had to go to regional meetings and give presentations in front of large groups. And, and I don't know why I wasn't scared. For some reason, I felt like, I don't know if I felt superior to them, so I wasn't scared. Um, but now it just doesn't bother me. Like it would be awkward to give, like you said, a eulogy or something at a funeral around people I haven't seen in a while. But like I think I could get up like at the NFL draft or like even the presidential um, thing State like on television, Union. yeah, and like that Andrew or like an inauguration, and yeah, just just talk for a few minutes. Um, I mean, I'm glad I've gotten over it and I haven't done it in a while. So maybe I'm talking, you know, crazy, like, you know, cause I haven't had to do it. So I don't know, but the thought of it right now does not give me anxiety at graduation. Um, because I was president, every, everybody who was president of anything at, um, graduate school, graduate, uh, graduation, there was a night where we all gave speeches and I, you know, wrote my speech and I, I had it memorized. I thought, you know, I thought we didn't have a teleprompter, so I didn't want to get up there. I went to a top 10 school for our field, and I didn't want to get up there and be a bumbling moron with everybody else who I thought was far more intelligent than I giving speeches. So I had my memorized and um, was kind of loose with it. I, it was more like having bullet points, and I got up there and killed it. Everyone else had it either on note cards, and it's like they were reading from it. And I was just up there and just just did my thing. So public speaking... I don't know why it's went away, but I know it's like people's biggest fears. Um, and it was mine for a long time and somehow it just went away. And I just kind of think it coincided with being less secure to more, a more secure in my own skin type thing. Like it doesn't, I just don't get nervous like that as much anymore for public speaking. I don't know what one of my greatest fears would be. I guess, uh, I don't know. Try not to, try not to worry about it too much. Well, guess Bigfoot. <laughs> No, I'd say for you, it's that wolf man. Wolf man, yeah. I'm not scared of him. I would like to see him again, though. I want to get some video evidence this time. Would you be horrified if you had to give a big speech, like in front of something, or would it bother you? Mm, nowhere near. I, I would have performance anxiety, would be how I would describe it now. Uh, don't. I would not choose the word fear to describe that. Um, my fear associated with speaking, now, to be clear, so that, you know, anybody would be part of this conversation and follow that. I, too, would be like you, that it was something that not necessarily that mortified me. But I would consider my fear, based on what I saw in my peers and classmates, would be average for getting up, at, you know, public speaking. And that continued until I, I guess I just got less fearful of it as time went on through college and professional school where I had to do it so much. Or it seemed to, you know, where it became more of a regular routine that it just became less fearful. But I, I wouldn't say that I had the same experience as you did, uh, other than not um, not at the same level anyway. I would say it's been parallel, but nowhere near as um, evaporating of the fear. Um, after being out of professional school and, you know, working our profession for, I don't know, we'll say eight to 10 years, being more involved at my church. 
where I had to either, you know, speak or pray or something in front of a large group of people that and, and or taking on a class that I lead uh, and teach that has pretty well gotten me past it for the most part. Like you said, if I were given one of these uh, great opportunities to be a person who was a speaker, you know, it would cause some performance anxiety. I don't know that I would necessarily call it fear. It's just like that. I want to get this right. right. That's where right. I would have the butterflies and all that would come from. I just want to get this right and do well, not, and I don't know if that, that in itself would be classified as fear. I, I, I mean, there are comedians and people, you hear this all the time. If, if you, you know, watch, listen or any kind of media about folks who do this for a living that there are people who want to throw up or maybe even do throw up before they go on. You, you've heard a lot of these old yeah. stories. It's like that is just kind of part of the human experience. And we, like, in science, we always want to throw back to where does this come from and how is this relative? I don't know if early men ever stood upon a stump and had to talk about, well, we're going to have to move because we're out of food. I, you know, I don't, I don't know where this comes from or if, you know, we're putting too much into this. Like it's not necessarily a fear of speaking that goes all the way back, but it may be a fear of all eyes on you in a predator situation. So where if you were alone, because when you're speaking, often you're alone and you get this sense of everybody's looking at you from a predator prey sense. Maybe it carries over from that. I don't know. I've never thought about it until right now. Just saying it that way made me think like, what else could this kind of be juxtaposed into? And if you think about, uh, you know, watching a nature documentary or anything and you get the situation to where you're like, Ooh, uh, I'm the lone wildebeest <laughs> and there are these lines around me that might manifest a little bit of, uh, you know, fight, flight or freeze. Right. Yeah. I think there's two types too. I mean, well, more than two types, obviously that, generalized fear and then like you were saying like if it's an actual like bang phobia. on the window and you're scared or yeah or a phobia um people <clears throat> could almost you know do one conversation on one and one on the other like i guess fear like everything else i always go back towards its generation is definitely it's got to be some type of um uh evolutionary thing where you know it either motivated you to get up off your butt and get away from the um, saber tooth tiger or whatever, or, mm -hmm. you know, just the fear of starving to death. So you had to do this, that, or the other. And I think you can see that not to interrupt you, but you can even see that in the generation that was around during the depression. Oh yeah, my, my great aunt was one of those and it never failed, you know, in my lifetime, which would be the later portion of hers where, in, where, you know, a stable society, there's no, nothing close to that depression. You know, she's doing well. We're doing well enough that even if something happened to her, we could take care of her. But when we, we would take her out for, say, her birthday or something and bought her like a meal at some restaurant, she would eat half and take huh. the other half home. That's interesting. Now, in my younger years, I thought maybe she just didn't have that much of an appetite. But I have looked back on that repeated thing. I think that comes from that depression era of, you know, they used the newspaper to insulate the cracks in the walls. They they saved milk jugs for whatever or butter dishes. Yeah. She had butter dishes. You know, one, there was no Tupperware. But two, th that was a fine storage container. Why in the world would you throw it away? Right. So yeah. they made use of every single thing. And the idea of waste was just so yeah. different than today that, you know, I think that just carried over. It, it was just permanently stamped into their being. Yeah, my um, grandparents, my, in particular, my granddad was that way. But I think that was more just coming from it. He because he was born after the Depression. But this comes from coming from maybe poverty, that kind of thing, too. Never Scarcity. Never throw away. Yeah, just you never know when you're going to need that. And it's been passed to me a little bit and sometimes to the... Uh, chagrin of my wife i need to throw some things away she calls me a hoarder i'm like yeah you probably shouldn't use that term because that's an actual condition and, and just right. because i don't want to throw away these cds that i cherish doesn't mean i'm a hoarder okay now if i was keeping like little debbie and cereal boxes like because you never know then or the cellophane <laughs> wrapper that the cds came in oh gosh yeah that, that might be a little extreme <laughs> no i do keep um on my blu-ray um, collection. I don't keep the cellophane wrappers or any of that crap, but like the stuff that it comes wrapped in, like the um, the cardboard or whatever, I'll fold that up and put it inside the container with it, just to be more of a complete collection if it's ever you know, some kind of collection one day. I don't know. That's, but that's more of me thinking, hey, maybe one day these will be valuable to somebody in 50 years, which they'll probably just be at the bottom of a landfill. 
nobody will ever want my it's, it's funny that our society you know other societies have gone through the first half of what i'm about to say probably not the second half and that is we have generations that have come and mostly gone now from the depression and scarcity that do a thing for that reason and now and then there is this generation of people who are wanting to create things that are collectible so there is a certain hanging on to things for the potential value for the potential whatever when it's clearly not something that's valuable on the front end I mean, right. no, no more valuable than, you know, if it costs you a 698 to buy the figurine, it's worth 698 I, or probably less. I don't know if it's a fear or not, but I do have a little bit of trouble of getting rid of things. And I don't know why it's, it's, I mean, I, like I, I have, have clothes well, and I'll I haven't been able to, I have clothes I haven't been able to fit into since before I got into graduate school that I just won't get rid of. Like I have a closet full of clothes that I just either won't wear or I can't wear. And I just don't get rid of them. I mean, some days I'd be okay with it, but like, yeah, throw those away out. I've had enough of this not being able to find my shirt, so let's get rid of all these clothes. But the same with uh, other stuff too. I just, I just don't like getting rid of things. Now I don't keep, I will not keep orange peels or some kind of garbage. But if it, has, if it seems to have some kind of value, or if I think I might need it later, then I keep it. Like I have a whole Tupperware container of hardware. And screws after and you bought something. Yes, like TV, and, and and it has came in, and I will say, countless this, times, it has come into play big time. A few times, like for like mounting TVs to the wall, I keep all the adapters. Um, and just put it in a huge container, and I actually, I used it when I got a light, a um, light bar, a uh, sound bar for it. It didn't come with quite the right washer or spacers, and I had those left over. Now I really probably don't need the hundred and sixty eight. Allen wrenches that have collected in there because they're pretty much all the same. But at the same time, metal. Yeah, for a while there, I was like keeping anything metal, and I was like, I'm gonna make a metal run. I'm gonna take this to the recycler. But really, never more fuel than you actually pay yourself back. (laughs) It wasn't just the pay, but also I feel bad for the environment. And now I have gone two or three times. I think the most I ever got was a couple hundred dollars, but that was because I had like. I don't know, a bunch of brake drums, a gas grill, and who knows how much other crap metal in the back of my truck. And then it turns out, um, I ran over a nail while going through their little scrap yard, and mm. if I wouldn't have had a warranty on my tire, um, it would have cost more for me to get that tire plugged or patched than it would have in the amount of money I got from the metal. But anyway, Recycling, maybe that's my biggest thing. That, that's an interesting conversation that's waiting to happen for sure. That is I've, not what it appears to be. It's not, but I think it could be good, though. Like I, I just living so close to a landfill <clears throat> and knowing what I know about landfills, I think there's a huge um, uh, misunderstanding of what landfills are. I just feel like we could recycle so much more, and just so much people just throw away so much that could be either reused or recycled. But uh, maybe that's a conversation for another day. I mean, could, I guess people could be afraid we're running out of natural resources, or who knows? But I don't know. I just living close to a landfill it's just like man that thing just gets taller and taller and i will say this before we move on from the subjects i don't want to get on too big of a tangent i think people think landfills you go you put your garbage in it and your garbage breaks down and over time it goes back to nature it just that's turns not, back to dirt that's not what a landfill is and if you're just now finding this out you need to do some research landfills are supposedly supposed to keep trash encapsulated and keep it from breaking down and getting out into the environment and we all know that no matter what it is we make that's man-made it's not going to last forever yet somehow some way these landfills are supposed to last forever not going to happen no it's just not going to work it's and, a time capsule for refuse yes and that time capsule one day is going to break down i was riding around with speed demon in this pickup truck and i was talking to him about it we drove past it the other yesterday or the other day and i was like you know that big old mound there which you know it's not totally unsightly it's just a big mound i was like that'll never have trees on it you won't be able to build homes on it because you can't dig in it and in fact they have to keep the trees off of it because the root system will go in and mess up those uh I don't know what they're made of, but the, you know, the baggage or not the baggage, but the uh, layers that keep it, everything separate, it'll mess that up. So trees can't grow on it. At least that's my understanding of it. But anyway, I that's my opinion. We could bring on when you want to go down that road, who works for one of those companies so he can answer all of our questions about the, what can and can't happen and the expected livelihood or not livelihood, but the length of time of those capsules. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. And I don't, you know, I know that everything can't be recycled and, 
you know, I'm even, I'm not even afraid of nuclear power like some people are, but at the same time, it's like, well, what are we doing with all this crap? Like, it seems like it would be so easy just to inject it into space. Yeah, but what if that rocket blew up on its way up? That would kind of suck to have all that. Come raining around back down. <laughs> floating around in the atmosphere and then come raining down on us. Anyway, speaking of fears, man, I remember um, growing up in the 80s. I'm a little bit younger than you, but not a whole lot. I don't know if it's because I grew up under the shadow. Um, I'm from Chattanooga, and I grew up in the shadow of um, uh, Sequoia Nuclear Plant. Everybody was scared like Three Mile Island was going to happen in East Tennessee. And um, in the southeast, they're on the Tennessee Valley. We have TVA, which runs a lot of nuclear plants. And I remember we had drills at school. Like we all had maps, like we knew which school to go to or um, which way evacuation to go. Like there's evacuation routes on all the highways. Um, my parents were flipping out. My dad still hates nuclear plants. Like he thinks we're all going to be. We're all dying of cancer. He thinks the nuclear plant causes all cancer in the Tennessee Valley. And I remember just, even as a kid, I was always kind of scared about it just because they were scared. Now I don't think twice about it, really. It doesn't bother me. But boy, that was a fear. Not necessarily a phobia. Maybe it was legit because it was ignorance. We didn't, you know, you fear the unknown. People were scared of nuclear plants. Did you did you find that or did y'all just not have one oh, yeah. close enough? That No, I mean, geographically, what you're talking about and let's see, is there one at Watts Bar? Uh, yes, that, yes, there is. Yes, Watts Bar is the other. They're one. all around where you and I both grew up. They're close enough that in terms of a failure, you oh, know, yeah. 60, 100, 120 miles, it's all the same. Not the same, yeah, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's going to be yep. a relevant issue. Uh, yeah. How old were you in, in 84? Do you remember? You know how old you would have yeah. been in 84? I was starting school, yeah. I was four or five. I was in the four. fourth grade, and I'm pretty sure it was fourth grade, so I would have been around that year. There was a movie that aired on television called the day after and this is the first time i remember like there being like a strong warning Uh, this is the day before way before parental advisory and all that and i remember the media saying you know you know you may not want your children to watch this or young people to watch this because of the strong nature uh and scary things that are going to be in this movie and it was a movie about after a nuclear attack and the fallout and all that. And yeah. I don't think to this day I've watched it, although I'm incredibly intrigued by it because of that boogeyman sensation that it created. But some of my friends watched it, and I remember them talk about it, and I've seen clips from it. And I knew since it was something I was supposed to be afraid of, hence all the media talk about it, why I put that into the war chest of things I was afraid of. So I just yeah. never let myself watch it when my friends would be like, oh, let's watch that. So-and-so's got it recorded. I'm like, nah, nah, that's okay. I've got plenty <laughs> of other demons. I don't need to add another one to the list. Yeah. But that kind of just parlays into both things you're saying. One, it was nuclear fear. And two, it was also the, the fear of going to war. There, you know. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, I feared a little bit of nuclear fallout in the 80s. We didn't necessarily grow up in the where the terms apply red scare, but every bad <laughs> guy at the end of it. Right. Every bad guy in a movie was all Russia or the Soviet Union related situations. And they were always in a war scenario. So if you've ever seen Red Dawn, that that is every young guy's fear is and maybe some fantasy. Yes. In okay, Colorado I, where yeah. the invasion happened and I don't think I've uh, seen it, but I've seen bits and pieces. So it's a very interesting about. movie. Uh, I would recommend it. And there's a review of it. Re- I was about to say I'm surprised there hasn't been. There was. I have not seen the redo, so I'm not sure of it. But I I could sit and watch the original one again. Um I think it holds up well. But uh, very interesting. But that was definitely a fear that um whether I let myself watch it or not kind of plagued in the back of my mind because when you get to a certain age and I don't know what number that is because I think it's going to be different for everybody. I think there is going to become a fear of death. And I remember this is a, I'm kind of letting people into the inner closets of my soul here, but I remember being afraid to die for a length of time in my childhood that there wasn't a day go by that I wouldn't have a thought about it. Or some anxious moment about it. Now, did I share that with anybody? Nope. I kept that mm. to myself. But um, it is something that plagued me through my childhood. Probably more because I didn't ever talk about it to anybody. And I just felt like I was the only one that had this. And I didn't understand it. But once just you, the idea of death or like dying from a 
like mm, just cause. the idea of death. No, yeah, not was, anything always, specific. Uh, because I, I mean, I did like the, the you know look at animals when they die, they cease to exist. Yeah. Um, what's on the other side, man? Even at that young age, I realized that there are all kinds of religions and theories and thoughts and feelings, but there there was nothing that stood in the way of anything outside of faith as yeah. far as what was on the other side. So if you're a thinker, little logical kid, which I like to think that I was, or I, I was took it on the roll anyway, that you did have magic powers. Me. I did have magic powers, but they were not one that would involve coming back from dead. No. So that, that part, like I could sway moments in a football game that meant nothing to life, but I could not resurrect myself. So that as far as you knew good. anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was not an experiment I wanted to try. Let's put it that way. Mm. Speaking of movies that people like to watch and, and make you scared, do, do you like scary movies or haunted houses or um, I don't know? I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to equate adrenaline rushes with fear because while I do think they are akin, I don't think that it's the same. It's not exactly what I'm talking about. Like, would you do you enjoy like scary movies and things like that, or being afraid or being scared, even though you know it's artificial? Um. <laughs> Like do you like uh, roller coasters? I think the feeling of suspense, both haunting for some or maybe all at a certain level, there is a certain tingly good feeling that comes out of that. I think um, it's good. For roller coasters you. are the same thing. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody at a young age, anyway, maybe once you're grown or teen or whatever, it's a different element. But th there is something about control. There is something about the that there is no control whether you're you know you you could control I guess because you can always close your eyes that was the ultimate control a child had watching something scary now you didn't have that same luxury in a quote uh, haunted house but as far as like watching movies that are scary I did think you know have enjoyment doing that probably more because my peers did yeah. I I wouldn't say that I would have ever. If I were the idea man for the group or the party or whatever, I don't know that I would necessarily have always sought that out. At some age, there would have been some curiosity about it because, you know, everybody always talked about the bad guys, you know, Jason and Freddie and all these people from the movie. So I'd have been curious about it. But again, back to the day after movie, I knew that was something that people were afraid of. So I didn't necessarily want to jam that into my war chest of things I carried around day to day. And I can remember at the age of a second grader, my uh, babysitter let myself and my sister, who would have been a year behind me, so a first grader, uh, watch. It was like a Halloween marathon on cable. And that would have been like Showtime. So we're talking about real movies, not oh. just television stuff. So there was a Salem's Lot, which at this moment brings the hairs up on my arm. There was Halloween 2, which was Michael Myers. And I can't remember what a third. It seemed like we watched three things. I'm going to recommend that that probably not be second grader material. Now that I have a second grade daughter, I'm thinking there's no way I would sit down with her and watch any of those things. <laughs> and my babysitter was as a child herself, meaning she was only five years older than us. So whatever that had been, the seventh grade. Um, I don't know. Th those things minted a moment in my mind with certain scary moments out of some of those movies that carried on to the point I remember being in college. So... 19 years old, I guess, at this point, there was a video rental place back when we had to rent tapes to watch movies. And uh, me and roommates and other guys on the floor wanted, you know, a scary movie to watch for the night. And Salem's Lot was one that we saw on the wall. And one of the guys is like, oh, man, this is a great scary movie. And I was like, Ugh, because I hadn't <laughs> seen it since I was that age. And I still remember what the uh, Mr. Barlow is his character was called, what he looked like. And even now, anybody else out there that's never seen it that's grown is going to laugh at me because it's such an odd looking uh, vampire, if you will. I'm Googling it right now. He's kind of freaky. It, even nowadays, very that's freaky. pretty crazy looking. And the first time you see him is going to be that sort of jump scare. You know, they flash him on the screen is a very, not a Bella Lugosi looking kind of vampire. And that minted in my mind. And so we're watching it college age and we got the lights out just the tv on and that scene where he's flashed upon the screen i kind of scream like a little girl i was heard on the entire other side of the dorm because <laughs> one it was a jump scare moment two right. 
this is reaching into my second grader fear bank and kind of dragging it up front and center. I, I mean, I could watch it to this day if anybody would want to watch it with me, and I'll probably do the same thing again. Um, it doesn't have the same effect on me, but I consider it to be one of the better scary movies. I don't know that anybody else would now. I was terrified as a kid of going to haunted houses. I also didn't want to go to Six Flags. You're like, oh, what kid doesn't want to go to Six Flags? Well, I was terrified of roller coasters. Like, they scared the crap out of me. I thought I was going to die while I was on it. And so it used to make my mom so mad or, you know, her significant other at the time. We would go go to Six Flags in Atlanta a, a lot in the summer when we would um, be down there all after school break. And I never wanted to go. I would rather have went and stayed with my grandmother. Um, and this is, I mean, maybe up until the age of nine or ten. Um, rather than go to Six Flags. Now I would love it. I, I like going, like doing stuff like that. I like riding the slingshots at the beach, all that stuff. But then I would not do it. Like I just did not like it. Um, but she also, my mom, when we were, you know, out for school, we would watch scary movies all the time. Like it was, it was just something fun to do. And I think it helps. Um, I think it helped me become more a more rounded individual. I think that it kind of trains your brain to be in those experiences so when you're in them in real life kind of you have some some sort of background i don't know if the amygdala and all that is trainable or not i haven't i don't remember from our education and i haven't done you know a lot of research on it but i feel like exposing yourself to stuff like that um at least at a young age now i mean if you haven't done it your whole life and you're our age and maybe it'll help i don't know but i think it helps you be a more rounded individual and i think a lot of these issues People are having younger people and um, maybe not even younger people. I think that they didn't challenge themselves, challenge any kind of fear. They didn't watch a scary movie or they didn't go out and do something that scared them a little bit. Because, you know, there's all those people that are supposed to be wise that say, you know, do something that scares you every single day. And I don't I don't think they mean, you know, jump from Hell building snakes. to building yeah, or that downtown. I think they just mean you know, do something that get out of your comfort Push yourself. zone. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it may be, maybe even they do mean a little scary um, that you're not sure you can do or not. That might cause a little bodily harm, but not like, you know, chop your arm off or something, but you know, do something and you realize you can overcome it. And that helps you be a bigger individual. A lot of these people I know who are relatives or friends or just maybe even strangers, but I just know who they are who have these huge anxiety disorders or they're so insecure with themselves. And it's carried out over a past um, adolescence. Never really were forced to, or never took it upon themselves to challenge themselves. And they just kind of sat there and didn't develop the skills like for regular life. And I think just as little as watching scary movies as a kid or whatever, and doing things like that helps you become a better, more well-rounded individual. And now, though, once I got a little older, back to what I was talking about a second ago, I. I don't like going to scary movies or no, I mean, yeah, I do like scary movies. I don't like going to like haunted houses or these haunted woods because it doesn't scare me and I feel silly and I almost feel guilty when I don't like jump or I'm not scared of them. And I kind of feel like, well, they're putting all this energy into it. So, but if I act scared, it's like, oh, I'm so scared. But then I'm just like, I'm trying to be Mr. Macho. I'm not scared of this guy with a chainsaw with no blade on it. Like, you know what I mean? So I just don't like right. going to stuff like that now because it just, I just, it's silly. Now, maybe if I had some kids who were actually were scared or if I went with some people who were scared, it would be fun. Just like these, um, these rooms everybody goes to now, like where you try to get out of the room. That just doesn't interest me. Like, what are they called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Escape, escape rooms. games. Like it just it doesn't I, interest I, I, me. If you've never done that, I will tell you for clarity, that is not about fear. That's more of a puzzle. If you That's like what riddles, everyone says. Yeah, yeah everyone's it, like, There's no fear associated with any of the ones I've done. My so mother-in-law thinks it's right up my alley because she thinks I'm competitive and super smart. And Oh, I'm, I think you would enjoy it because I've done it twice. And there was, there's no fear like you're going to be left in here. The, the fear is just like you know losing the game. Like There's yeah. a time limit, and once you're done, like the workers come and say, okay, unless if you don't make it through the thing. Yeah. <sighs> See, I just want to win at it. Like, I, I just want to be good at it. I've, uh, I think your frustration is going to be with your teammates. Yeah, and I would want to, like, I would have to take you charge. you can't do it all because you're literally in the spaces of rooms and or more than one room. So you cannot digest every single clue because you can only cover so much ground with the time limit. So you, you definitely need a team of thinkers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd have to choose my team wisely.
Did you say you're a competitive person? Uh, yes. Now, there's got to be caveats to go with that because I find that that phrase is widely misunderstood yeah. and I have misunderstood it myself over time. And that is when people say they're competitive, one, you know, this is like Merriam-Webster's definitions, one, two, three, four. One version of that phrase to me is another way of saying, hey, I'm a butthole when we do things <laughs> against each other. Because I think that's what people mean. And they want to pass before it starts because they are either so poor socially skilled in competition or so driven to win or dot, 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 that nothing matters. Your, your friendship manners, uh, you know, children's rights, whatever. They don't care. They got to get, <laughs> they got to be the one. Now I, I know two really, really impeccable men who are of great faith, great moral character, so forth and so on that both confided in me at different times. It makes me feel good to be the best I know at blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm, and they I don't like look down on anybody. So, I mean, to hear that from somebody else, I would be like, yeah, you, you just got to push everybody down to feel good about yourself. These guys, do not carry themselves or go through life with that way. But that is just a little part of how their brain works. It it fuels them to know that they're the best shot in the shooting group or the yeah, best runner or something. I want to be the best whatever. I can be at it. And it does feel good to beat other people, but only because they're not trying to be the best they can be at it. It's like, see, if you would just try better, um, this could be a whole other show in and of itself. So maybe we can save this for table it for another time. But I'm the same way. I like to I like to do things I like to I like to be challenge myself almost to to get better and better. I've recently taken up bowling, as you have found out through all my text messages. We've been going now for about a year, but I've really gotten into it the last couple of months. So I made the switch to instead of using house balls, get my own ball. And do the fingertip oh, it's grip. On now. And yeah, I've got my own ball, I've got a fingertip grip. I'm trying to learn how to throw it correctly. And man, it's it's not the same. And it's I've, so it's like starting all over. It's like I'm five years old, old again, and I'm trying to learn how to bowl from the beginning. Except I'm not five years old, and I want to be good at it instantly. So it's kind of frustrating, but I'm gonna make my way slowly at it. But what's more frustrating is there's a group of about four of us that go, and the two that really got me into it just go casually. And they just uh, kind of bowl, you know, whatever they want to win. You know, they, they like winning, but they don't really have any interest of getting great at it, like doing it like with the curve. They just, you know, bowl with they don't use they have their own balls, too, but they, they have a traditional grip rather than the what everybody who is a professional or, you know, if you bowl, let's say for a college or even in a class, they don't have any interest really in getting good at it. I was like, don't you want to get good at it? And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's just fun to me. I'm like, well, it's fun to me to get good at something. So. It's like, like even fishing, like, you know, I want to learn how to fish correctly. I want to do it right. But like I said, we can go down that tangent forever. We probably should save that for, that could be a whole other conversation or a whole other show, maybe. Some things you said at just a moment ago, and I made a note, is that fear, you talk about how it's good for children and development and future. I, I will, believe that strongly. I, I had a thought and I, and some of the reading and some of the things I've done talking to people just to kind of get my mind around what we wanted to talk about. Um, I I want to use this phrase. It fear is like medicine. Dose is yeah. most important because too much oh, yeah. is poison. And uh, I'm fortunate to have a, a great friend of mine. She is a child and family counselor. And I'm fortunate enough to have a long conversation with her today about fear. And I mean, that's a lot of what she deals with is, you know, not just she's not like a fear expert or anything, but dealing with the humans and how we develop and what we you know go through and all that. And a lot of times fear is going to be embedded in that because of child being mistreated, endangered, whatever. But a constant exposure to fear, that mm -hmm. constant fight, flight or freeze that's always turned on can actually change you permanently, at least until you're able to go through something and, and work things out later to, to where you are numb to things. And just, and which is not good because now you have kind of like turned off a sensory oh, so part of your emotions. You're that, saying it's the opposite of having anxiety. Like you just, you're not scared of anything or you just. Not so much in the fear part, but if we look at this more into like the social interactions or emotions right. in, in general, like you, you might, if, if you grow up in a terrible situation to where, and, and I, I don't even want to cast an example, but just everybody use imagination, just a bad home life for a child where they're physically abused, maybe sexually abused and just terrible things that you hear about, you see in movies and you know, it's real life. This is not made up. It happens in every town. 
that person will develop a certain amount of ability to deal with that. And however that manifests could be okay or could be terrible. And the idea that uh, constant exposure to fear or things like that can eventually develop into this sort of numbing of things that she told me she even had a client, by that I mean eight-year-old, that told her he was using an illustration to tell her about how he deals with things with bad home life. He says, you know, make myself numb. And she's like, tell me more about this. You know how when you go outside in the winter and you're out there a long time, how your body just gets cold and you can't feel anymore? I can make myself that way. She's like, your body? He's like, no, I'm talking about my feelings. Hmm. This is an eight-year-old. That is interesting. So I, I, it, just, it just hit me thinking about that conversation, hearing you talk about it. I think it's definitely like medicine in that or exercise. I mean, there's too much of anything. Yeah. Uh, in, well, in this case, and I didn't, I'm, I didn't, I'm not implying that you meant more was better. It just was a thought that came out of that part right. of the conversation. Well, that, either can either can be bad, too much or too little. Unfortunately, I think that there's way too many people who don't, who have way too little as opposed to the other. And I know? think it's an overreaction to the illustration that I'm presenting. And that is, okay, if this horrible situation begets this broken human. Mm-hmm. Let's guard against it at all cost yep, because yep. they look at it as an, an, a linear equation and not think about it in terms of like a spectrum thing or uh, back to the medicine dose. Like, all right, if this person take too much of this medicine and all these horrific things happen, let's just take the drug off the market. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, this could be something that changes people's lives. No, 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 no. This one guy he killed this one guy. Yep. Yeah. But let's see. Does it apply to everybody? And if we lower the dose, does it do it that I think- way? I mean. I think and that's a good example of life in general nowadays is we're doing too much ruling and too much living based on um, exceptions. And that needs to stop quick. Otherwise, we may be doomed. I know there's a lot of people who think we already are doomed as a society, but we need to realize what's an exception, what's normal and deal with it appropriately. Like, like, you know, the saying has been around forever, you know, everything in the right proportions, um, what is, what is it the actual saying people say? Um, you know, anything in the right amounts, you know, yeah, it's okay. Everybody's probably screaming in their yeah. headsets right this now. This is what it is. Yeah, because we said even you and I've said it a million times at work about stuff. But you know, anything in the correct proportions. And I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of these people were like, well, when I was a kid, I had to do this and didn't like it. I hated it so much and I had to do it and do it and do it. And so they don't make their kids do it at all. And so people grow up not exposed to it. And it just and the problem is remembering that correctly. Like let's just oh, yeah. we're not talking about abuse here, but whatever that negative is, if you have manifested that to be just this really gut wrenching thing, you're gonna just not have your children do it. Right. And you, what you don't realize is part of you developing as a rounded individual came out of that. That coddling of America or yeah, American we keep minds, going to it. That's been on hey, my tongue a too. Spectacular. Ugh. Have you been through it yet? No, not. I, I want to really put some time down and. It is fantastic and do it. because it explains. Did you a say lot it was about, on Audible? Yes, yes. The the idea that children are what his words were anti fragile, meaning so if you have fragile is something that breaks easily. The opposite of that meaning resilient, it, it, right? It, by exposure. That, that's what he talks about. And he, he puts that akin to the immune system. And I even think in the immune system, the general public does the same thing with this. They're like sanitizing, hand wash and taking a shower yep. and alcohol and all these things. It's like, yep. whoa, whoa, whoa. It's important to be clean. But you must, I, I think the whole world could t- take a good dose of basic microbiology and understand yep. that our immune system, quote, is weak or strong based on exposure yep i mean they teach that in basic school but everybody's like why do i need to know this right. or if that's a whole and everybody attention. thinks that exposure is totally bad and totally wrong and you're going to catch coronavirus with the first exposure <laughs> Ebola. And, and that's just not true i think but. i got coronavirus this last week Ooh, it was rough <laughs> mercy I don't think it was the coronavirus that everyone's talking about, the a novel, but yeah, it probably was a coronavirus. I think you're right, though. I think that whole coddling thing, like, and I don't want to get a bunch of haters now, and I don't, I don't even know if we have any subscribers at this point, but I don't want people unsubscribing when I say this, but just hear me out a little bit. 
I think the most stressful thing that all of us do, at least the majority of us who had a quote, quote, normal or average bringing up was going to school. And in, in that vein, middle school in particular was the worst, terrible, terrible, the worst. And I wouldn't want to repeat it. I've seen some horrible stuff and done some horrible things and had to go through some horrible stuff, but I don't know if I would go through sixth, seventh and eighth grade again. But because of that, I think it makes you a better person on down the line. I think so many people remember how horrible school was and they probably exaggerated a little bit in their mind. Um, so they don't send their kids to school now. And I know there's other reasons too, that things have changed, you know, in, in school. So there's other reasons they pull it out. But for those people that I do know, most of them just do it because they don't want their kid to be exposed to uh, what they were exposed to when they were a kid in school. And it's like, well, they need a little bit of that. They need a little bit of getting picked on on the bus. I'm not saying they need to be punched out every day and have a fear they're going to get beat up before they get home. I'm not saying that's okay because it's not. But a little bit of, you know, don't smart off to the bully. It teaches people, you know, not to smart off when they're standing in line waiting for their Big Mac. You know, you know, if we all could treat each other a little better, I think you learn that growing up going through the public school system how to social interact and not even maybe not even public school i'm sure i didn't go to private school i never spent even two seconds inside of a private school um except when we would play them in sports and man their facilities were awesome but anyway um i'm sure it's like that in any in any institute and I think if you're totally homeschooling your kid, and I can always hear people say stuff like, well, but they go do this, they go do sports, they go do, they have these clubs they meet up with, and all that's great. But my point is they need a little bit of that negative stuff that you don't want. You need it in correct amounts to make you a more well-balanced person. And I think that goes into what we're talking about anything and, and the correct dosages, the correct amounts helps you learn. It helps your brain learn and be able to cope with it later as an individual. Cause now you get these people who you can tell either didn't go to school or didn't, um, experience fear. They just can't handle customers. They can't interact with people. And when there's a problem, they just melt down. Like they can't, um, problem solve. And I think it all stems back to not being exposed to small things like small problems to work through, whether it was bullies or whether it was, I don't know, you know, standing up and having to give a presentation when you felt uncomfortable. Like some people can't work in front when the the big wigs are in town, like at your place of work. Yeah, you can't work underneath them. You just freeze and get nervous. I think that's all a all a result of um, not necessarily maybe the coddling, but where they haven't been exposed properly to it. I think it's all it's good for you. Maybe it's not a way to live every day. But like you were saying, also, um, I mean, I have people who are close to me who are a little overboard with like being scared about something all the time. Like always, always, always afraid of something like and trying to harp that to everybody else. And it, it gets to where either that person's going to be numb to it, to where they're not afraid of anything, which maybe influenced me a little bit from this person, or it'll go the other way um, where they have generalized anxiety disorder, agoraphobia, and just, they can't right. function normally because um, of the way that, People were overly exposed to that constant, not fear mongering, but you know what I mean. Just to, just to be careful. You got them now. This might happen. Now you got to be weary. This might go on. Or this might happen. Like, yeah, it might, but it's probably not gonna. Like, it's good to be told that something bad might happen, but when it's just shoved down your throat all the time, like you were saying, it, it creates one or two extremes. Not everybody can come out from it normally. And you got to do things in, in correct amounts, is I guess is what I'm saying. The basis of what I'm getting at with the fear but if you never expose yourself to it i think you're more likely to come out nowhere near as well-rounded as somebody who who did experience those things not necessarily just fear but challenges in general but but fear for sure in particular of what we're talking about today what would you what would you say i've got one that's kind of generalized search definition and then i've got one that uh, my friend the counselor um, she gave me a definition of fear. I wanted to hear how yours compared to that. What would, what would you say is, uh, what is fear? Uh, like if someone just, if I was just to just, describe the feeling or just try to just tell people just, what it just was. Did it, yeah. Like in general, like what is fear? Um, I would say it is, um, a feeling you get when there's something that's unknown and perhaps your ignorance of it may cause you um, 
harm, bodily harm or other type of harm. I guess it's the most generic definition I would put of it. Like you the, don't know, like you, there's some kind of ignorance, whether it's you don't know there's a burglar at the door, you heard a sound, or um, you don't know if you're going to be successful at giving a speech and you don't want to be made fun of later. And I guess that would be social harm rather than bodily harm. But something that you perceive perhaps could cause you some type of harm and you don't want that harm to happen. So you don't know if you want to go through that experience or you're trying to prepare yourself for that experience. So you do come out successful on the other side, I guess is fear to me. Um, I want to give you Allison's answer first, and then I'll give you the textbook information that I found. And I, I found hers to be quite encompassing. And I really love this definition. And that was, I asked her, I just said, what is fear? She thought for a moment and she said, uh, it's an emotional experience of physiological or psychological stress that is without love, trust, or hope. Hmm. And I don't know that you could, I think your answer fits, but I think it kind of goes into like a certain direction of fear and not necessarily like the entire umbrella of fear. And after hearing her say that, and we kind of talked about a little bit more, the idea that you, you have this emotion which in this work, this is fear. And it's either going to be a physiological, like you freeze, you fight, you run. That's a response to a stress. And in that situation, this is what's experienced the lack of love, trust, or hope. Because if you could trust the snake totally, I don't think you could be afraid of a snake. If you could trust that you would not fall, I don't know that you'd be afraid of heights. Right. And I thought, man, this really encompasses every possible way that you could think about fear because they don't always associate with a burglar or a snake. I mean, everything that could be wrapped up in it's a it's an experience, emotional experience of physiological or psychological stress that is without love, trust or hope. The only thing I would say to that definition, what I would tweak in it was the hope part. Like I would only think that you could say I I guess maybe she meant this when she said it. Probably when you throw that hope in there, that that's going to be specific towards like an anxiety disorder or a generalized, like I think you always are going to have hope that you're going to get through the situation unless it's one of these um, people who can't go out in public because they are so scared. They don't have any hope that it's going to be better. So they're paralyzed. Maybe it's the freeze part. Mm -hmm. They don't have any hope. Maybe that part of, even if it's a snake or something, maybe that applies. But yeah, other than that, that sounds like a pretty good definition. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's it's funny that it's not the most profound thing in the world I've ever heard, but I could I would have never cobbled together those exact words. So when you look at that kind of turning it around and think about, all right, the elements wherever and whenever there is love, trust or hope. That that's a good place, meaning it's a place without fear now. Testing that or having brief moments without those things are what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. And just the like momentary that. absence of all of those things that enables you to be a stronger individual because you are going to have moments, whether it's a couple of seconds. Oh, that snake's way over there. I'm I'm good now. It's but it's because it's way over there. Right. Or whoo, that was a close car crash. Um, it's not necessarily going to paralyze you from being able to drive again. Or if you are in a bad car crash and you recover from it, time goes by and you realize, hey, this is one of those things. And yes, it could happen again. Got to get on the horse. But the odds. Yeah. It becomes know. a phobia, I think, at that point. Like if it's irrational. Right. Or if you can't control it. That's pretty good. You got a textbook definition in front of you? I mean, I guess I could Google well, it. Well, it's kind of a big wordy version of it. And that was, it is a powerful primitive emotion. It alerts us to the presence of danger and it was critical in keeping our ancestor alive and could be divided into two responses, biochemical and emotional. You know, the biochemical they claim is like a universal and that's the right. fight, fight or freeze while the emotional <coughs> response is highly individual. And I think that's what makes treating people's fears incredibly unique because we're, probably used to in a therapy or whatever kind of setting we're probably talking more about the emotional not necessarily the biochemical it may be a component of it but it's not necessarily the main thing we're focusing on got simply psychology, because it's universal psychology today pulled up psychology.com and it says 
Fear is a vital response to physical and emotional danger, which has strong roots in human evolution. If people didn't feel fear, they couldn't protect themselves from legitimate threats, which in the ancestral world frequently resulted in life or death consequences. Have you ever wanted to not be afraid of any, everything? Uh, yes. You have the power it, yes. to turn it off and on, yeah. Yeah, but he's a young person. I don't know that you ever wanted to turn it on. I just wanted to be Superman. <laughs> Why is that, you think? But I guess that's the same plot. Way. I guess the fear of death and all that. I mean, if you talk about it in general, but yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know why. Be better than everybody, to be able to do things that you can't do, that, you, that others can, and if you could do everything, you could do it too. I don't know. It's not like the Arby's guy. I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely had that exposure, or not exposure, experience at some point in my life where I wanted to be fearless. Not reckless, just fearless. But I think that's... Um, yeah, when I was you, in... When you numb, in this case, meaning there is none of that or anything that approaches fear, I think it totally changes your, your experience of life. And it would be like, um, for example, if you, you're, you're a more diverse eater than I am. So I'm more of a, quote, picky eater. But somewhere along the way, there is something you don't like the taste of, whatever that is. And definitely the case for me. So the extreme version of this would be like, I just don't want to taste because I really do not like the texture and taste of onions. I'd just soon taste nothing and just eat food as nutrient pellets for the rest of my life, which would be an over-exaggerated way. Wow, what a way to short-side myself to yeah. any pleasure <laughs> associated whatsoever with flavor or even smells, if you want to tie those things into that. Like, I just don't ever want to smell stench again. Well, I'm, you're not ever going to smell roses or a day after it's rained or, you know, anything or like the smell of uh, your newborn child and your, all those things are gone now because the removing of a negative is not without the removing of the positive as well. I'm not saying that necessarily you can't have positives without negatives, but I think that they're definitely worth a lot less when you don't have the negatives for sure. There was a point when I, if I could have removed all fear, I was in a band when I was in school and I remember going trying out for all East and all County and all state and all that. And just, that's probably the most terrified I've ever been. Uh, now really? that I thought about it. Yeah. Like going in, um, there was so much pressure and you, you wouldn't think so, but there was like, I was first chair at my high school on alto saxophone, but yet I never made all East. So, and then the other people who played like, I was leaps and bounds ahead of the other people who played alto. Like there's until maybe my senior year, there were, there weren't really other people who were that good. So I didn't really have anything to, to compare myself to. And the other players who were really good at my school often made, um, all County or all East, um, or all state. And, you know, kind of prove that, Hey, we are really as good as we think we are. Of course, on my instrument, it was always, they only, they took a lot fewer, um, saxophones than they did most other instruments. So you had to be that much better right. just to get in. And I never really made it. So I, I never, ever actually made it. I made a first alternate one time in all County. That was the closest I ever got. I don't, I think it was my junior year. I'm not sure. Um, but so I was so nervous because I just felt like I had all this pressure like to prove that you know i really am i feel like i am good at this instrument compared to the general population in which even looking back now i was i wasn't like you know you know coltrane or anything like that but did it disturb just, your sleep the like, night before oh god yeah like weeks before i would be worried about tryouts were coming i remember having butterflies in my stomach for probably weeks before the actual um audition happened and it was a big to do you know like we 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 car car pulled up there or caravaned up there like the trials for all state are never were never in our location they were always up or for all east were always up in east tennessee up in knoxville so it was a big to do everybody went up there everybody from all the other schools were there and you know you were chatting and stuff and everybody was going through their skills and their uh, prepared piece and you know wondering about what was sight reading going to be sight reading if you don't know is where you just go in there and you're given a piece of music and you're told to play it you've never seen it before theoretically which did, I had never did seen. Did you have a mind. routine? And I don't mean a, a musical routine, but uh, I think one of the things that people get taught about fear and coping is positive talk, positive mental preparation, yeah. a lot rehearsing things in their mind. Is, is that something that we were doing as teachers and or a society at this point in time? And or were you part of that? 
I like, did had, you go through it in your mind laying in bed or were you kind of just paralyzed by God? I hope it works out no, good. I really hope. I really hope. No, no, no. I was never paralyzed because I always went and did it. I, I just, yeah, I would try to repeat it over and over in my mind. And I think looking back, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, um, but going through that, I think really helped me be a more well-rounded individual. Like, cause I went, I did it. I never really made it, but like being a failure at something or not or accomplishing your goals wasn't the end of my life. Like, you know, I didn't die. I still got into college, went to good colleges, still, you know, graduated professional school, blah, blah, blah. But being able just to overcome that fear and go and do it, there was not a better feeling in the world than when you walked out of an audition, at least for me. And of course, it was probably different for other people. I'm sure they were nervous, but they, you know, they knew, I mean, hell, they took who knows, 70 something trombones, you know, and, and for the, all these bands, cause there was like five or six bands. So they all were given color names and I forget which one was the best now. Um, so more than likely the people who were their top two or three chairs in our high school band, um, or symphony, whatever they have nowadays, ours was just a band guy. I went to such a basic high school. Um, would, you know, we're pretty confident they were going to make it. It was whether they were going to make top band or second band, third band or fourth band. And I would have taken fifth band or whatever was the worst because it was just so difficult. And I never really did. Um, but getting through that and exposing myself to it and preparing for something and trying to make it, I think, really helped overcome fear. Maybe that's part of the reason why by the time I got older, I didn't really care about giving speeches in front of people. I didn't, it didn't bother me. Of course I had leadership roles and other things where I had to, you know, talk to people, um, uh, give them guidance, like being section leader or whatever. It might've helped. Till next time. I'm going to finish up part two of fear. Be safe. Take care. Seen a bunch of run-down no-horse towns Where the church is the backbone, loves and the bow And the five-string melodies grooving